never heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah, right? I have not either. Um, so this will be the first sermon I've heard as well on the book of Obadiah as we move through it this morning. We're going to start by reading God's word, um, the 21 verses of Obadiah, not very long at all. And then I'll pray for us and we'll move on from there. But Obadiah, starting at verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, Edom will be humbled Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, all understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives, do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray as we get started. God, thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to just work through this short little book in the Old Testament. God, thank you that in this book there's a, a picture of you as a great king of retribution, 
but also as a great king of restoration. God, I pray that this morning that we would take comfort in these truths about you that we find in this book. God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy of the gospel. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but your words are of utmost importance. And so, God, I pray that we would hear from you, that we would hear your words, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that Christ would be exalted and we would be drawn to you. And God, I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We've been in the Minor Prophets for a while now. Um, we've got a little bit longer to go in the Minor Prophets before we're all the way done with them. But as we've moved through the Minor Prophets, we have not gone through them um, the way the books are laid out in the Old Testament. Rather, we've gone through, through them sort of chronologically uh, as to when the things that are talked about in the book are actually happening. Right? And so up until this point in, the, in our chronological movement through the Minor Prophets, the southern kingdom of Israel or Judah has not yet fully faced God's judgment at the hands of the Babylonians. Before we've gotten to this place, we've seen the northern kingdom of Israel fall to the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom has not yet fully faced the Babylonians. That's all changed as we now find ourselves in Obadiah. There are many people named Obadiah in the Old Testament. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you would find maybe 10 or 11. I don't remember what the exact count is of different people, different characters along the way who all share that name. It's a fairly common name. It's still a common name. The Arabic equivalent today is Abdullah, which, is, which you hear quite often, right? And so there are a couple of schools of thought as to whether Obadiah... Um, the, the, person, the Obadiah that wrote this book was a prophet around the time that Israel went into exile or whether this was a prophet who lived uh, hundreds of years before and was a servant to King Jehoshaphat. But when you look at the content of this book, what's actually happening in this vision and you compare it to actual historic events and you compare it to uh, other prophets and other places in scripture that talk about this very same thing, specifically Jeremiah, who, who also references it in the book of Lamentations. Um, when you look at the content of this book, what's happening in this vision, what Jeremiah talked about, things like that, it just seems to make sense to be a later book that was probably written during the time that the exile was happening. And so the historical context for Obadiah writing this vision is probably after the Babylonians have come in and ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, but before Edom has actually fallen to the Babylonians as well. The Babylonians had laid siege to Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They led thousands and thousands of God's people into exile. And the Davidic kingdom the kingdom from which the Messiah was supposed to come, the Messiah that was supposed to sit on the throne of David forever, that kingdom was no more. I, I want you to feel the weight of that. For God's people, this would have been devastating because the kingdom that was supposed to last seems to have come to an end. To make matters worse, like the video told us a second ago when Babylon invaded Judah, their brother, Edom, their neighbor, sided with the Babylonians and gloated over Jerusalem's destruction. They participated in it, and this betrayal was probably pretty painful to God's people. 
And Obadiah's vision here is unique in that he has nothing negative to say about God's own people. It's directed at Edom. But I think part of the reason it exists is to comfort God's people. There's no more fearful position to be in than to find yourself at odds with the holy God of the universe. And that's exactly where the nation of Judah has found themselves as they've been taken into exile. Their kingdom no longer exists. They have been treated brutally by the Babylonians. And yet, the focus of Obadiah is on Edom and the divine judgment that will now come upon Edom and the promise of a restored kingdom. It was written most likely, like I said, in Jerusalem after its fall, but it is about Edom, a nation that refused to protect the refugees coming out of Judah and instead handed them over to Babylon instead. I think part of the reason that this book exists is probably to address some pretty key questions that would have been raised by God's people, that it would have been natural for them to ask during this time of exile and defeat and shame. Questions like, what will become of God's plan and promise to bless all the nations through Abraham? Will the godless nations of the world triumph like they've done so now? Will God's covenant with his people come to an end? Will God's kingdom ever exist again? This week as I was thinking about the people of Judah, the people who now find themselves in a position of oppression, a people who are no longer free, but were instead now under the thumb of a foreign king, a people existing in shame and humiliation, a people whose pride has been taken away, a people whose kingdom no longer exists, a people who were wondering, God, what are you going to do now? What happens next? As I was thinking about these things, I was naturally drawn to a poem by Maya Angelou. I'm going to read it for you. It's this, a free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The cage bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the cage bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees and the fat worms waiting on a dawn bright lawn and he names the sky his own. But a cage bird stands on the grave of dreams, his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The cage bird sings with a fearful trill, things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill. For the cage bird sings of freedom. That poem was obviously not written about God's people being in exile in Babylon, right? And instead it was written about the state of oppression and systemic injustice in our own country. But when I hear those words of how the cage bird sings of things unknown, things longed for still, 
I can't help but think that's probably how God's people were feeling in this moment. Longing for God to do something. Longing in the midst of their suffering and humiliation that had come at the hands of both the Babylonians and the Edomites. Longing for wrongs to be righted. Longing for God to show up and make things right. And although it may not seem like it, Obadiah's vision, in Obadiah's vision, in this book, there is good news for those who find themselves humiliated and helpless while their rivals boast and profit from their defeat. Because what Obadiah sees in this book is a sovereign God who promises both just retribution and restoration. God is at work for his broken-hearted people here. The very people who had been sent into exile because of their sin and injustice and idolatry. And yet God is at work for them. And there is rest for the weary soul in that truth. So if we take a moment and look at what Obadiah actually sees in this book, I think we're going to see three themes that show up. Um, repeatedly throughout the book, but in the way that, even in the way that it's broken down. Um, and, and here they are. First, God hates pride. Second, God is unswervingly righteous. And third, God will triumph over evil and set all wrongs to right. But first, God hates pride. Proverbs 6, 16 through 29, I mean, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this, There are six things that the Lord hates, Seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. What is the very first reason that God has called an army against Edom in verse 1? Verse 3, it says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. There's a couple of pictures I want to show you real quick. Um, One of them is a picture of an archaeological um, site in what would have been Edom, what would have been one of their fortresses in the mountains that they took pride in. That's Petra. Petra is a place in Jordan that was not built by the Edomites, but just to give you an example of maybe how the Edomites had built these dwelling places into the hills, and they had taken such pride in their place of prominence, in their place of safety, being on a mountaintop, For whatever reason, they had taken pride in these things. And so God in these verses says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verses 5 through 9 go on to talk about all the things God will take from Edom so that there can be no more pride for them. It talks about the produce that will be taken away. It talks about their treasures that will be pillaged. It talks about how their allies will no longer exist, about how they'll be pushed to their borders. Not long after Jerusalem fell, this very thing came true for Edom. 
But the point here is this. The point to take away is that God hates pride. Pride is a universal human problem, not restricted to any particular class or people group or society. It's a human condition. And throughout the Minor Prophets, We've seen how God has stood against the pride of his own people. And now God's people are humiliated and they're probably wondering what God is going to do about the prideful nations that have brought them low. In some way, Obadiah gives them good news. He comforts them by letting them know that God hates Edom's pride just as much as he has hated their own pride. If we look at verse 10 through 12, it says this. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. When a person or a people group or a nation is in the bondage of pride, they take whatever opportunity they can to exalt themselves over others. Nations, adults, children, we all have this in common, that apart from the grace of God, we tend to derive pleasure from another person's failure. Because it soothes our inadequacies and it magnifies our successes. And Edom relished the destruction of Judah. They actively cut off the refugees running for safety. Handed them over to Babylon in order to magnify their own position in the world. Instead, Edom should have seen God's judgment on Judah and trembled. Edom should have humbled itself and repented of its own pride and cried out to the Lord for mercy. Instead, Edom gloated in its supposed greatness and turned away those who needed refuge. Because of pride, Edom hated his brother. God reveals to Obadiah that he will not let that sin go unpunished. And even though there's not a one-to-one correlation between Edom in our nation. I can't help but think about the refugees at our borders right now, the children incarcerated, and how Jesus doesn't turn away the refugee, but instead calls them to take refuge in Him. And how we ought to be able, with the comfort of knowing that Jesus is both the King of retribution and the King of restoration, be able to give ourselves up for the refugee whoever that may be in our lives, whether it's individuals at our borders or someone else a lot closer to home. The reality is that God hates pride. But secondly, the second thing I want us to see is that God is unswervingly righteous. Verse 15 says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as those they had never, as though they had never been. 
As you have done, says the Lord, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. It is a great and glorious truth that the God of the Bible, our God, is a God of love. But that doesn't obscure the equally true fact that He is a God of unswerving justice who will always do what is right. This is a severe and sober caution for those who oppose the people of God and by doing so oppose God Himself. And yet it also gives great hope to God's people as they experience affliction of various kinds around the world. And that whatever is done to them by those hostile to the gospel will one day be repaid by God Himself. It is God who promises retribution. And retribution does not belong to man, it belongs to God. And there is great hope that comes from knowing that God will right all wrongs. There is great hope from knowing that God has acted in history to do something about these wrongs. Do you remember how verse 16 that I just read referenced that Edom will drink God's wrath and will suffer divine retribution? It says, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. It's a fairly common um, picture in the Bible of drinking God's wrath. You see it over and over and over. But do you know of anywhere else in Scripture that speaks specifically to someone drinking God's wrath? Matthew 26, 39 through 44 speaks of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. It says this, Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Do you realize what this means? We're Edom. We're the ones that have been proud. We are the ones that have sinned against our brothers and sisters. We are the ones that deserve the cup of wrath. But Jesus willingly drank it for us. Let that sink in. The day of the Lord that Obadiah references, the day of God's judgment on the wicked and God's salvation for His people, that day ultimately came to fruition when Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. Obadiah is a difficult little book, but there's a straight line to Jesus right here in the middle of it that we could easily miss. Let's not miss it. The king of retribution poured out his wrath on himself so that we might get grace in its place. Finally, God will triumph over evil and set all wrongs to right. Verses 17 through 21. I'm going to read them again. 
But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The exiles of Jerusalem who were in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The closing verses of Obadiah ring with the glorious promises of both a means of escape from God's judgment and the hope of a restored kingdom. Verse 17 speaks specifically that there will be those that escape and it shall be holy. Those who have fled from the wickedness of pride to the salvation offered by Christ will find refuge on the day of the Lord. Edom could not find refuge in their mountaintop cliffs, but there is a way for us to find refuge in Jesus. And the kingdom that God is establishing, the new heaven and the new earth that will one day come shall be holy because it will be filled not with people who have never sinned, but with people who have been broken and humbled by their sins such that they've run to Jesus for refuge. The promises made long ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they and their descendants would possess the land will not be frustrated. And on this side of the cross, from our New Testament perspective, we can see how much larger the fulfillment will be than what Obadiah could see. The people of God will not be limited just to the Jewish remnant, but will reach out to embrace all those who trust Christ. Galatians 3, 28-29 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ's, then you were Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The kingdom of God that Obadiah foresees, the restored kingdom that God promises, will be freely shared with people from every tongue and tribe and nation who have accepted Jesus as Savior. People for whom Jesus is King. And the promise at the end of Obadiah is a promise that we can share with those original hearers because of Jesus. Because the kingdom is the Lord's. And that's really good news because God has invited us into His kingdom just as much as He's called us to invite others into it as well. And so as we come to a close this morning, let me just ask you this question. Where do you see yourself in this story? When I was in the fifth or sixth grade, I don't really remember what year, um, at the elementary school that I went to, one year I was picked to play Joseph in the Christmas play. It was a really big deal. And uh, for whatever reason, I put a lot of pride into the fact that I got to be a, a star in the play. I didn't realize that Joseph's not the star, right? But anyway, so key component, put a lot of pride into this, talked about it a lot, probably got a little bit of attitude about how I was going to be Joseph in the Christmas play. 
Probably didn't have any speaking parts, but still, it was a big deal. Um, and so the day before the Christmas play, my dad came to school to pick me up, and I remember getting in the back seat of the car and sitting back there, and my dad turned around and looking at me, and he, he goes, hey, um, have, you, have you done anything at school lately to get in trouble? And I had done a lot of things to get in trouble, but I wasn't going to tell him that. And so I said, absolutely not. Everything's great at school. And he said, I, I just want to be clear. Let me ask you again. Have you done anything lately at school to get in trouble? I wasn't picking up on the clues. And so um, I said, of course not. I have never gotten in trouble at school. And uh, he goes, he's, right, I'm in the back seat, and he holds up this letter like this. Over the it was pretty dramatic. And he was like, um, well, what is this letter that I got from your teacher that has told me about all the ways that you've gotten in trouble over the last few weeks? And I just remember, like, audibly being like, oh. And my dad going, yeah, oh, is right. And so for whatever reason, probably because I had had an attitude about being Joseph in the Christmas play, my dad was like, you're not going to be in the play tomorrow night. You don't get to be Joseph, right? It was a crushing in that moment. It was crushing. The, the very thing that I had been so proud about was taken away. That's just a little, that's just a silly little story from my childhood. I know that. But that same thing that happened to me, that moment of crushing humiliation, that's where Judah found itself as the exile was happening. They were humiliated in their exile. Their kingdom has come to an end. And in some ways, I'm sure they were brokenhearted and in need of comfort that God would right all wrongs and bring retribution where needed. And ultimately, they were comforted by a promise of God's restoration of all things. Are you like Judah this morning? Is that where you find yourself? Do you need to hear that promise of restoration that God will set all things to right? Or are you more like Edom, puffed up and proud, proud of your position in the world, proud of your knowledge, proud of your good theology, proud of how cool you are, proud of whatever? Do you need to be confronted in your pride and reminded of what God thinks about your lack of humility? Where do you find yourself in this story? And what does that mean for you right now? What Obadiah sees in this book is a sovereign God who promises both just retribution and complete restoration. God is at work for his brokenhearted people, even though they are the ones that put themselves in the position to be brokenhearted. And there is rest for the weary soul in that truth. Obadiah provides deep consolation, not just for God's people then, but for believers everywhere. As global Christians suffer constantly for the cross of Christ, they can rest content in a God of perfect justice who will not let injustices go unpunished. And more broadly, God will act justly toward those around the world who still practice injustice, who still hate their brother and sister, who still harm those needing refuge, those who boast of their pride, who humiliate their brothers and sisters and oppress their neighbors in order to puff themselves up. The kingdom of the Lord prophesied in Obadiah 
is a kingdom into which believers have been graciously and irreversibly ushered in by Christ. We live under a king who will never leave nor forsake us. And yet presently this is still an embattled kingdom. One day that will not be so when we see the full fulfillment of all that God promised. The glory that is coming on the sons and daughters of God in this coming kingdom will be perfect and will be everlasting. Shame and tears and rejection will be over. Joy will have dawned. And we await that day with eager hope. And in the meantime, let's rejoice in Jesus, the King of both retribution and restoration. We're going to enter into a time of response, and during this time of response, it's an opportunity to reflect on those very things that we may have heard from God's Word this morning, a time to reflect on what God may be speaking to our hearts and minds from the book of Obadiah. We have an opportunity to continue to worship by singing. The band will come and lead us in some songs and give us an opportunity to worship in that way. We have an opportunity to worship by giving. If you're a part of Redemption,